what we want to do today is we want to get into the source. We want to look at the Bible and ask this question, who is Jesus? Right? Ultimately, who is he really? And is it different to the picture we have in our heads? And then, how is this going to affect our lives? How do we need to respond to this if we get the picture of Jesus right? So if you have your Bibles there today, uh, we'll be in Mark 11. We'll pick it up where Sharpie read off for, uh, uh, where he read before. In verse 1, as we ask this question, who is Jesus? And Mark records the story for us. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives... Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and, there, uh, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So what we see in verse 4 to 6 is they go, they get this donkey, people ask him about it, they're sweet with them taking the donkey, and then verse 8 and 9, Jesus jumps on the donkey, walks into town, and then verse 9, people are in front of him and behind him, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the kingdom, the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Okay, so, so what's this picture of, the, of Jesus? What does the Bible tell us about who Jesus is? Well, we're going to see two things today. And the first thing is this. It's that Jesus is a king who brings peace. Right now, now we see that in this story. But the broad sweep of this story is that Jesus is just riding a donkey into town. Right? You got that picture in your head. He's riding a donkey. And as he does it, people are celebrating that. Right? They're amazed by this dude on a donkey. They're chucking palm trees down and they're shouting out. That's the broad sweep of what's going on in this passage. But as we dig into the detail, what we see is that this is actually a king who's going to bring peace. Right? This is going to bring peace. And we see that as we look at the detail. But as we look at the detail, there's also some questions. right? Like, why does Jesus steal some guy's donkey? And why does he send the disciples to do it for him? And probably the biggest question in all of this, why a donkey? Right? Why would he ride a donkey into town? I mean, the, the call of the day, and we've seen this already in the book of Mark, is that throughout Mark so far, Mark wants us to, sh to see that Jesus is the king the Old Testament spoke about, right? Like he is the guy, the king that was spoken about for thousands of years. Here he is. And the call of the day was when kings would arrive somewhere, they would ride on a horse, right? So they would go into town or they would go into war on a horse because a horse was a symbol of power and strength and might. Right? A horse, you know, if you were riding a horse, you'd see a king on a horse and you go, I want to follow that guy. He's strong, he's powerful, he's mighty. It's the modern equivalent of maybe a private jet, right? Like if you see someone flying in on a private jet, you think, wow, they're powerful, they're wealthy. You know, maybe we want to listen to those people who were on that jet. That's kind of the modern equivalent of it. But what we see Jesus doing is he doesn't ride on a horse, he rides on a donkey, which is weird. Right? Like, why does he ride on a donkey? I mean, this is the equivalent of Harry and Meghan when they came to Australia, not rocking up on a private jet, but on Tiger Air. It's not a sign of power and wealth. It's a sign of cheap flights and lost baggage. That's all that it's a sign of. And that's kind of what it feels like here Jesus is doing. He's rocking up on a donkey. So why a donkey? And what was going on with taking the donkey? Well, well the reality is, I mean, we don't really know why you know, he took this donkey but the owners were okay with it, and that was fine. But we do know why it was a donkey. See, if the horse was the symbol of power, a donkey was a symbol of peace. 
And so what Jesus is doing in this moment is showing that he's not going to be just a king who brings power. He's going to be a king who brings peace. And we see this in a few ways, right? We see what this means because it means something really big, right? In fact, what we see, the first thing we see is that as Jesus rides on a donkey, he's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. So 550 years earlier, someone wrote in the Old Testament, Zechariah wrote that the king would come on a donkey. Right There's the passage in Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And so what we see is the bigness of the fact that Jesus is going to bring peace because he's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy 550 years before that here is the king the Old Testament spoke about. Right? Remember, we've seen this too. The king who's going to set the captives free. The king who's going to heal the sick and give sight to the blind. This king that people were longing for and looking forward to, here he is on the donkey entering into Jerusalem. This is a significant thing. It's a big moment in the history of Jerusalem that the king is here riding on a donkey, the king who's going to bring peace. But the other way we see this is through the crowd's reaction. Because when they see Jesus, they cry out. And they say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is this king, blessed is the coming of the kingdom, Hosanna. And Hosanna just literally means save us, right? It's not this, I don't know, it's just, that's all it means, save us. It's like, you know, what, the desperate crying out to someone who can save them, a person drowning, crying out to a lifeguard, that's essentially what we're talking about here. And they cry out to Jesus, they see Jesus, and they say to him, save us. Right? See, in some sense, the crowds get the bigness of this moment. They get that this guy is, in some sense, the one the Old Testament spoke about. And so they scream at him, they cry out, Hosanna, save us, bring your kingdom in. And so what we see then is this is really big. Right? It's a really big thing that he's a king who's going to bring peace. Right? It's massive. It's huge for the original readers. It's huge for the people reading it. And it's big for us too if we think about it. Right? Like we want peace. You know, we can identify with this longing for peace. I mean, even if we think our country is a country of peace, I mean, we've experienced this week of what happens when that peace is disrupted with the Burke Street attack. Like we, we even know that. We want peace. We long for peace. And we want peace not just in our nation, but in our own lives. We can identify with this longing for peace. But see, the original readers had that as well. Mark is writing to people in Rome who suffered for their faith, who died for their faith. And so the concept that the king is going to come to bring peace, this is a good idea, right? I mean, this is huge. This is massive. You mean that that peace is going to hear, that war is going to cease? Stress is going to disappear? Mayhem is going to go? The king is going to bring peace? And so as you see this king, what are your expectations? Right? I mean, where, there's anticipation, right? There's longing here. What type of peace is this king going to bring? How is he going to bring this peace? I mean, because this is a big moment in history, a huge moment in history. The king has come to a significant town, to a significant moment. This is big. So how is he going to bring peace? Well, what do we see in verse 11? When expectation is in the air, when there's anticipation, when we're expecting a battle, verse 11 is actually just super mediocre. 
we just see in verse 11, Jesus comes in, he takes a look around, looks back at the, ten, at the crowds, they're gone, right? The crowds aren't there anymore. Looks at his watch, sees it's late, and then leaves with his guys to go find somewhere to sleep. That's weird, right? Like, we're expecting a king to come and bring peace. People want a king who's going to bring peace. But what we get is just mediocre. It's just nothing. And so we've got to ask the question, why does Mark give us verse 11? Why, why is that where he goes? Why doesn't he go straight into a battle scene or something like that? And, and the reason is, is, is actually, I mean, Mark is highlighting this for us. He wants us to feel the fact that expectation and anticipation is gone because Jesus is going to show, he's going to bring peace. But Jesus is going to be the, be the king that people need, not the king that people want. He's going to be the king who brings peace in a way that people need, not just in a way that they want, right? Because they wanted Rome to go down. They wanted their immediate you know, uh, struggles to be resolved. But Jesus shows that he's going to bring peace in a bigger way. And the reason we don't see a battle scene in verse 11 is because Jesus will go on to bring peace. And yes, he will go into battle where blood will be shed and bodies will be broken, but it won't be the enemies. Jesus will die and he will do so to bring peace, the peace between humanity and God, the peace people need. See, we want a peace that resolves the now, but Jesus brings a peace that's greater than that, a peace where we can know whatever happens now, we can be sure of the future. This is why we get a nothing verse 11. We're meant to see that this king is going to be the, people, the king the people need, not just the king the people want. And so Jesus is the king of peace, right? That's the first thing we see here. He's the king of peace. Now, if we were to stop here, you might argue that the picture of Jesus with the lamb on his shoulders is a good one, right? We could stop there. And you could argue that, you know, we can stick with that picture of Jesus. But the reality is, as we keep moving, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is not just a peaceful king. He's not just the king who's going to bring peace. And we see that from verse 12 on. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the uh, distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say, so the first thing we see about Jesus is that he's a king who brings peace. The second thing we see about Jesus is that he's a powerful king. Now, I know that in these verses, we don't see Jesus' power. Okay, I, I get that because, I mean, what we see in these verses actually kind of shows a sign of Jesus' weakness. Right? That's what it feels like on the surface because he goes up to a tree and he curses it. And he curses it because it has no food right? No fruit on it. That, it feels weird. I mean, it's almost like someone uh, going to the fridge, you know, and you see nothing in the fridge, and so you curse the fridge. Right? Now, if you see someone do that, you're not thinking, wow, what a strong guy, right? That's a sign of weakness there in that moment. But, but what we see here in this passage is not weakness. It's actually power. And we see that not just from these verses, but from this whole section, See, as we go to that next slide, what we see is that Mark is using a technique in ancient writing called a chiasm. And what that meant is you would write in a way to emphasize a big point. And so you would write in uh, this way. You would write in a structure that's A, B, A. Right? So you'd talk about one thing, 
then you'd talk about another thing, and then you'd kind of go back to the first thing that you were talking about. And in writing like this, the key thing is what's grayed out there. The key thing is the middle. It's, it's B. It's not A. It's point B. It's like a sandwich, right? You know, the bread matters, but not as much as what's inside the sandwich, right? You can't make an olive sandwich nice. What matters is what's on the inside. And that's what we see here as well. So we'll get to this whole fig tree thing in a moment. But the key thing is point B here. It's what happens in the temple. And so we go to point B. We go to what happens in the temple. And this is what we see. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, how do we see Jesus' power here? Because like the fig tree, it feels like this is a moment of weakness for Jesus. It feels like he's just snapped. Right? It looks like he's just so frustrated that he's just lost it and snapped and goes in and throws tables over and you know, tells people to get out and that kind of happens. It feels like that's what's happened. So how does this show Jesus' strength? How does this show his power? Well, we see it when we understand the temple. Right? So what was happening in the temple was pretty interesting. So the temple back in this day was the meeting place between people and God. If you wanted to meet with God, you would go to the temple. The Jews would go to the temple to meet with God, but so would the Gentiles. And a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew, so the nations, right? But to go to the, to the temple to meet with God as a Gentile, you could only go to this place called the Court of Gentiles, right? Now, this is significant because in the temple, the first place you would enter is the Court of Gentiles, okay? Now, as Jesus enters the Court of Gentiles... He looks around and he sees what was meant to be a meeting place with God has turned into a marketplace. Now, the guy that came up with this idea, in terms of purely money-making and the idea of, of making a profit, this idea is a pretty good one, right? This is actually pretty smart if you want to make some money. Because what would happen, right? So if you wanted to meet with God, you would come to the temple. And to do that, you needed to sacrifice an animal. Okay, because the idea we see throughout the Old Testament is the symbol that for you to meet with God, blood needs to be shed. Right? Something needs to pay for your sin, for your guilt. And so they would come, they would sacrifice an animal, and then they could meet with God. Now, the poor people would sacrifice a pigeon. And if you had a little bit more money, maybe you'd sacrifice a lamb. Okay, that's kind of the way that it played out. Now, they decided to come up with this idea to put a marketplace in here, which meant if you're at home thinking, okay, I want to go to the temple, um, you go, instead of trying to go to the backyard and catch a pigeon, which would be difficult, you just go, we'll just go to the temple, and you can buy your pigeon there. You can buy your lamb there. You can buy whatever you need at the temple, right? So they set this marketplace up at the temple, okay? Now, this was a big operation. Okay, this is no like, you know, this is no morning tea for us at church. This is not like, you know, you've got one coffee machine and, you know, maybe 10 people or 20 people that want a coffee. This is a big operation, right? Thousands of people each year would come to the temple. So lots of animals sold, lots of, you know, you'd have food going on there, you'd have smells, you'd have people going through there. This is a big operation. In fact, there's uh, one guy called uh, Josephus who was an ancient historian. He writes that one Passover, on one day, 250,000 lambs were bought, 
sold, and sacrificed. This is a massive operation, right? What's going on in this marketplace is a big thing. So the modern equivalent, again, I mean, in my head, at least what I'm thinking of, is kind of like each street markets. You know, if you know each street selling lots of different foods, uh, lots of different stalls around the place where, you know, you have lots of different flavors and, and going on. There's lots of people that go there. It's a big kind of event. But if we could cross each street markets with the RSPCA, right? And so you've got that combined together. And so you're kind of going in and you're looking for food to buy, but then there's also a petting zoo there, right? You, you want to get some, you know, Japanese, but there's also pigeons flying around, right? That's kind of the picture of what's going on. Now, picture this, right? As you've come to church this morning, McKen- uh, McKechnie Drive's closed off because there's markets set up. There's birds flying around, there's lambs crawling everywhere, and this is your experience of coming to church. Right now, as you see this, what are you feeling? What thoughts are running through your head? Because we hear lots of noise, right? People everywhere. I mean, we can hear lambs making noise and that pigeon sound, and, you know, we can hear all those noises. We can smell different stuff. I mean, food, you know, we can smell the food. We can smell burning. We can just smell animals and petting zoos and stuff like that. You can see lots of stuff. And this is your experience coming into church. Now, when you see that, what are you thinking? You're feeling for the animals? Are you thinking about, you know, what food you're going to get? Are you thinking about how much money people are making here and, you know, who runs this place and the operation there? It's not exactly setting you up, is it, for a meeting with God? It's not exactly, you know, getting your heart ready to to meet the God of the universe. This is what they'd made the temple into. This was the court of the Gentiles. You would come in and there are animals everywhere. There are stalls everywhere. There's people making money everywhere. And this is your experience. What was meant to be the meeting with God is now this marketplace, So it kind of makes sense then why Jesus does what he does. He he goes in and he's angered by this. He is angered by people using God as a mask mask to abuse people. Right? God is not happy when people use religion to abuse the weak and to make money and to, to use it as an opportunity for their own greed. He is angered by that. And so he goes in and throws some tables around and sends the people out. Now, I think there's also another question here. If that's what's going on in the temple, if that's the bigness of what's happening in the temple, the question is then, why doesn't Jesus do more? Right? Because you can reset tables. You know, you can just set up again. You've got a whole night to do that. I mean, we watch that in the, at marketplaces all the time. You can reset tables. You can restock, you know, money. You can get some more animals in. That's fine. Why doesn't Jesus do more? And, and there's another question too. I mean, if this is all he's doing is throwing over some tables, why then in verse 18 do the teachers of the law want to kill Jesus? Why do they then decide after they see this that they began the plot of murdering Jesus? Because on the surface it seems small. So there must be something bigger going on here. Right? Jesus must be doing something bigger than just stopping you know, the, the work for a few hours. And so what is that bigger thing? Well, we see that as we come back to that chiasm, right? The whole structure. And so as we see in this next bit, in point B, they go and have a look at this fig tree, and the fig tree's dead. 
And our boy Peter, who's been, you know, great the whole time as the disciple commentating as we would as well, looks at the tree and he's surprised by the tree. And he's like, wow, Jesus, you actually did that. And and he sees this cursed fig tree. Now, the point that Mark here is making for us is the bit, we've got to see this in the big sweep of it, right? Not in the individual detail, but in the big sweep of it. The fig tree is a living illustration, a living illustration of the temple. The temple, they look like, They should be bearing fruit. They look like they're doing the right thing, but the reality is they don't have any fruit. And Jesus, when he curses the fig tree and then it dies, is actually showing us something bigger when we think about the temple as well. Jesus is not just stalling work for an hour or two. In fact, what we see because of the sweep of this is actually that Jesus in this moment is cursing the temple and he is identifying as the person who is going to destroy the temple like the fig tree was destroyed. And we see this in a few ways. We see this, your Bibles will say, uh, down the bottom, if you've got your Bible there, when Jesus says that you have made it into a den of robbers, in verse uh, 17, your Bible will say that that's actually from a place in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, uh, what we see in that passage there is Jesus, as, not Jesus, God is declaring that he will judge his people. And he will judge them for their sin and he will destroy them. And here Jesus, using this language, is actually saying, I'm not just the king who's going to bring peace. I'm also the king of power who is going to judge the world. He will judge the temple and he will destroy the temple like he destroyed the fig tree. Right? See, Jesus is not just the lamb. He's also the lion. He's not just the king of peace, right, who's nice and, and comforting and dead on a cross. He's also the powerful ruler who can speak to a tree and it will die, who can bring down a temple which was an establishment for the meeting place between God and humanity. Jesus can bring that down in a moment. And the fascinating thing is how he brings down this temple. See, Jesus, the lamb and the lion, goes to the cross. And in this moment, what we see is the lamb was slain. This is why we call him a lamb, right? Because he was the sacrifice once for all. Right? If we want to meet with God, no longer do we have to sacrifice pigeons. Right? There's a reason we don't have pigeons in the cube today. You don't need to come to church bringing your lambs and your pigeons and whatever else you want to bring. Jesus is the sacrifice once, and once for all. Right? But what we see then as he goes to the cross, the lamb as he was slain was still the lion. And as Jesus breathed his last, in that moment the temple was destroyed. The curtain was torn in two. And what we see in that moment is both the lamb and the lion acting in that moment as Jesus dies on the cross and destroys the temple. No longer do you need to go to the temple to meet with God. Now if we want to meet with God, we simply come to Jesus. So Jesus spiritually destroyed the temple. He made it useless. And then what we see in a few years, the temple physically got destroyed as well. But see, it wouldn't matter if it got rebuilt. We no longer need the temple. Jesus destroyed it in that moment at the cross. And so what we see then in this, in this picture, in this sweep of this passage, is that Jesus is the peaceful king. He is the king who will bring peace. But he's also the king of power. Now, when Peter sees this, right, so we go back to Peter, and he looks at this fig tree, and he says, wow, this actually happened. Jesus shows him the response that is required from people when they see Jesus. And he says these simple words in verse 22. He says, have faith in God. 
The response when people see Jesus for all that he is is quite simple. We have faith in God. Now, verse 23 to 25 there, it kind of feels in a way that it's just been put there. But what Mark is doing is showing us that faith in God means that we have fruit in our lives. Right? Unlike the religious people, we have fruit in our lives. So we've got uh, prayer there. We've got belief there. We've got forgiving others. We've got trusting Jesus. We've got surrender. We've got dependence there. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is showing the response that's required or, or the right response to who Jesus is. It's faith. Faith in dependence. Faith where, unlike the religious, we don't come with our efforts thinking we're good enough. We come falling at the foot of the cross. And, and so then we see in this passage who Jesus is, but we also see the responses to Jesus. But the reality is, again, as we gather together today, our purpose here is not just to look at people in Mark and keep them at an arm's length. We actually need to draw this in because Mark is wanting us to ask the question here today, not just what do people think about Jesus, but what do you think about Jesus? And not just what do you think about Jesus, but what are you going to do with Jesus? See, again, the reality is you've come with a picture of Jesus. You have an idea in your head of what he's like, right? Maybe you identify with him as the lamb, the guy carrying a lamb type guy who's weak, who's humble, who's mild, who can't do anything. Maybe that's your picture of Jesus. Or maybe your picture of Jesus is that he's strong and powerful, but, but far off and distant. But see, as we come to the Bible this morning, what we are confronted with is actually a king who's both. He's the king of peace who loves you and cares for you and is deeply for you, who died on the cross for you. But we also see a king of power who rose from the dead and now stands as judge. And as you see this, the question is, what will you do with this? How will you respond to this? And the way Mark shows us the responses, I mean, when he writes, and he's a very skillful writer, as we've seen this in Mark so far, is he's not just telling us about Jesus, he's also showing people's reaction to Jesus. And in this passage, we see three reactions to Jesus. The first one is the crowds in that first section. When they see Jesus, they're excited, right? They're enthused by him. They scream out. They lay palm trees before him. But the reality is their excitement has no substance, their enthusiasm has no depth because when night comes, they're gone. And in a few days' time in, in Mark or in a few chapters' time, what we'll see is the crowds then yell out, crucify to Jesus. They want him killed. The first reaction we can have is one where we are excited, but we don't have depth. Where we have enthusiasm by what Jesus offers, but no substance. Where we like what Jesus gives us, but we don't want to give him our whole lives. He can have part of my life, but not my whole life, where we hold on to him at an arm's length, where we leave him at the periphery of our vision. That's the first response. The second one is the religious. And we see that as the religious, they kind of get an idea about who God is, but ultimately when it comes to it, they do the right thing, but they miss God. They tick the right boxes. They would be here this morning at church. Of course they would. They would stay late. They tick the right boxes. But the reality is the religious miss God. They don't understand God. They don't love God. They're just going through the motions. And this can be seen where we do the right stuff, but we don't really know why. Or we do the right stuff because we have to, not because we want to. 
That's the second response from the religious. And then finally, there's the response that Jesus gives to the disciples. It's one where we can surrender to God, seeing all that he is and all that he's done, where we can let go of our own efforts and we can bring him into the center of our lives and fall in dependence of him. Now, these aren't just the character's reaction. Mark is bringing that to us here today and asking you, who do you say Jesus is and what are you going to do with this? This week, uh, I was reading a book called, uh, from Tim Keller, an author and a pastor, uh, and he wrote a book called The King's Cross. And on speaking on this passage, this is what Tim Keller says as he brings this to us. He says, Jesus is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword. We could add in there both the lion and the lamb, both the peaceful and the powerful. But he goes on, he says, either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Those teachers of the law who began plotting to kill Jesus at the end of this episode in the temple, they may have been dead wrong about Jesus, but their reaction makes perfect sense. Please don't try and keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. He cannot remain there. Give yourself to him. Center your entire life on him and let his power reproduce his character in you. Now, I know that for some of us, we're here today and we're not sure about Jesus. When it comes to our understanding of Jesus, right, we still have questions that we want to ask, uh, what we want answered. And if that's you here today, we love having you here. And we want to help you see who Jesus is, right? We want to help you keep going on in this journey. We've got heaps of stuff here for you at Southside to answer these questions. Talk to the people you came with or head to the info desk and we'll point you in the right direction. But if you're here today, And you know about Jesus. You know who he is. You see him for all that he is. The question that Mark is putting to us this morning, the question that God is putting us this morning, in light of who he is, what are you going to do with him? Will you crown him or will you kill him? They're the options that make sense. Will we reject him and ignore him and leave him out of our life as if he was dead? Or in seeing who he is, will we crown him and make him Lord of all? See, the options we have as we see Jesus are crown him or kill him. But if we crown him, he has to be Lord of all. He's Lord of all or he's nothing at all. And so as we see this, we have to feel the weight of these words. Don't keep Jesus at the periphery of your lives. Don't leave him on the edges of your life. Come to him. See him for all that he is and center your life on him. And when we do, it's there that we find life. It's there we find peace. It's there we find security. It's there we find a king who loves us and is for us. And it's there we find the king of power, the king of glory, the risen king. 